KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. It's time for Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. This week, we're digging into one of the most comprehensive reports on homelessness in California. So according to this survey, you know, people are are from here. This is where they grew up. And the San Diego Police Department wants to put up more streetlights that record video, but there's concerns about privacy. They're out there. They can be used for good and for bad. So it's just... I guess a political process where we're going to have to find a way to agree on how they should be used. Plus, peak fire season is here. And stay tuned for the Roundup, where we discuss other top stories happening in San Diego. Don't go anywhere. Roundtable is coming up next. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. One of the most comprehensive reports on homelessness in California was just revealed. It found that unsheltered residents are aging with a median age of 47, and one of the main reasons for them being homeless is lack of income or housing affordability. Joining us to dive into what this report from the University of California, San Francisco uncovered is Cal Matters reporter Marisa Kendall. Marisa, welcome to Roundtable. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So this was a long report. These researchers spoke to nearly 3,000 people, conducted hundreds of interviews, and it sounds like housing affordability was one of the main reasons that they found for people becoming homeless and a barrier for them getting out of it. I mean, what did the report show there? Yeah, so among those people who were surveyed, the median income they were making in the six months before they became homeless was just $960 a month. And we all know that's not nearly enough to live on anywhere in California. And when they were asked why they lost their housing, more people cited a loss of or reduction in income than anything else. And strikingly, the vast majority said that if they had received a relatively small stipend, as little as just $300 a month, it could have prevented their homelessness. I know you cover homelessness for Cal Matters, and you're kind of well-versed in the homelessness crisis. Uh, was there anything that stood out to you from this report? I know that there was kind of a lot in there, but uh, anything kind of stand out to you? Yeah, you know, what I found most striking was what so many people who were surveyed had in common was all of the trauma that they had been through in their lives, even before becoming homeless. People reported growing up in depressed communities with few job opportunities, experiencing exploitation and discrimination, but nearly three quarters said they had experienced physical violence during their lives. One quarter had experienced sexual violence, and one in three people surveyed had attempted suicide at some point. This survey got into why people left their last home. And the most common reason, I think you mentioned it earlier, was loss of income, but also things like conflict with roommates or not wanting to impose on friends and family. There were some others. Your story highlighted one person's individual experience for actually becoming homeless. Can you tell us a little bit about Carlos? 
Yeah, his story really highlights how so many different factors lead people to homelessness and how the progression is often gradual. So he had to stop working after he fell off a ladder and hurt his spine, but he wasn't eligible for workers' comp because he'd been paid in cash. So he couldn't afford his rent, so he moved out of his apartment and rented a room. And then he soon had to leave that room because he had conflicts with his roommates. So then he moved in with his sister's family, but then someone in that family lost their job during the COVID pandemic. So he moved out because he didn't want to be a burden on that family. So he moved into his truck, but then his truck eventually got towed because of unpaid parking tickets. So at the time of this survey, he was living in an encampment in a park. And you also write that this study attempted to dispel myths about those who actually do fall into homelessness. What exactly are we talking about there? Yeah, one of the big ones that I observed was it's a common common refrain and common rhetoric that people say a lot of the homeless people in California moved here because, you know, California has nice weather, we have social services for whatever reason. But the study found that in reality, 90% of the people surveyed said they were last housed in California and 75% said they live in the same county as where they lost their housing. So according to this survey, you know, people are are from here. This is where they grew up. And we know that that 75% number in terms of last house in the county that they were in, that tracks with San Diego County and the data that they have. But this UC San Francisco study, it did note that 82% of respondents did say that they had a time in their life when they experienced a mental health condition. And about two thirds reported at some point in their life regularly using illicit drugs. But it sounds like, Marisa, that researchers found that's not what necessarily drove them to lose their housing. Is that sort of what they what they found? Yeah, and I think this survey really highlights how complicated it is and how there's a lot of interconnecting underlying factors. And it would be, and, and other research backs this up, that it would be too simplistic to say that, you know, drug and alcohol use causes the vast majority of homelessness. Um, some researchers pointed out that those things are often linked to poverty and to income instability, and you may be more likely to have addiction problems, mental health conditions when you grow up in those unstable conditions that then help exacerbate your homelessness. Um, Also, the survey interviewed some people who were using drugs to cope with life on the street. They were getting high so they could stay awake all night because if they fell asleep, they'd be attacked or have their possessions stolen. And other people talked about how the really tough conditions on the street exacerbate their mental health conditions. So it's really both go hand in hand. And it's too simplistic to really say, you know, people are homeless just because of drugs and mental health. Nearly 90% of those surveyed said that they want housing, but that the cost of it is a major barrier. And we know, Marisa, that this report came with some recommendations. What are some of those? Yeah, the main one was we need more housing for the lowest, the people making the lowest incomes in our population. And they suggested we could accomplish that by expanding housing vouchers, by offering subsidies, um, helping people share housing and splitting the cost, supporting people who live with friends and family. Another big one was uh, lowering barriers to housing for people who have been incarcerated. Because the study really showed there's a strong uh, jail to homelessness pipeline. You know, a lot of people who end up homeless had been incarcerated and many come straight from those institutions. 
And, you know, Marisa, creating more affordable housing, it doesn't happen overnight. But something that could happen quicker, maybe, is this idea of rental subsidies. We talked about it a little bit earlier. That's where most surveyed said that $300 to $500 could have prevented their loss of housing or even helped them find a new home. Here's what Tamara Kohler, CEO of San Diego's Regional Task Force on Homelessness, had to say about how these rental subsidies could actually work well. It is far cheaper and it is more humane for us to lean into these much simpler uh, investments as well. So when you think three to five hundred dollars is the difference between someone experiencing homelessness or retaining uh, their housing, let's say it's three hundred dollars. Right now, a shelter bed is costing us on the low end about eighty dollars a night up to uh, $150 a night. So two nights of shelter, $300, or three nights of shelter if you're in the you know $80 range. That is a whole lot cheaper for us. And it allows people to stay out of the crisis experience that all of us, when we're in a space of crisis, we are not thinking well. There is a, it is It affects our health. There's so much cost savings that doesn't just come out in the dollars and cents. Here in San Diego, Marisa, there's a county and city rental subsidy program, but combined, they'll only cover about 500 households, a little over 500 households. Has there been any talk out of Sacramento about a statewide rental subsidy program? There's, there's been some talk about programs like that. One, one met, uh, matter that's really gaining a lot of attention is guaranteed income. There's a bill working its way through the legislature that would give a guaranteed income to homeless students uh, when they graduate high school, but that gap between high school and college. And there's been a lot of programs throughout the state doing similar things. Uh, we've identified more than 40 pilot programs that either have run or operating now or are planning to launch that would give people this guaranteed income, which is basically regular payments in cash, no strings attached that they can use however they want. And I actually thought this part was interesting. You wrote that state officials were the ones who actually wanted this report done, yet they didn't fund it. But you noted that since Newsom has taken office, about $21 billion has been spent trying to address homelessness and and money for housing. And some would argue that the situation hasn't gotten better, but it's actually gotten worse. Uh, How are state officials responding to some of these reports' findings? Yeah, California Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley responded to the report. Uh, Apparently, it was actually his idea to conduct the report back in 2019. And he said that the results will, quote unquote, help guide our approach in California. So it remains to be seen what comes out of this and how closely our state officials are listening. But the researchers and other experts hope that this will help guide policy going forward. And sort of along those lines, what are you going to be watching for next year? Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting, A, to see if this guides policy, but also to see if this makes a difference in how regular people perceive homelessness. You know, you still hear a lot of of the myths and a lot of the rhetoric that are not necessarily supported by facts, such as, you know, everyone who is on the street is mentally ill and addicted to drugs. They don't want housing. They don't want to work. They're not from here. And those that type of thinking, um, you know, that impacts policy because it impacts how people vote and the types of decisions that are supported. So it'll be interesting to see if this plays any role in shifting that narrative. I've been speaking with Cal Matters reporter Marisa Kendall. And Marisa, thanks so much for being here today. 
Thanks for having me. We'd like to hear from you. You can send us your thoughts by giving us a call at 619-452-0228. Leave us a voicemail there or email us at roundtable at kpbs.org. Coming up, a plan to bring more streetlight cameras to San Diego is bringing privacy issues to the forefront and the debate about police surveillance. The Privacy Advisory Board chose to reject a police plan to start using these streetlight cameras again. That's just ahead. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. A debate over new surveillance tools for the San Diego Police Department was on full display this week. It happened during a meeting of San Diego's Privacy Advisory Board on Thursday night. A plan to bring more streetlight cameras to San Diego, it brought privacy issues to the forefront during that meeting. Privacy advocates, community members, and law enforcement were all debating the limits of police surveillance. KPBS's technology reporter Thomas Fudge has been covering this story, and he joins us now here on Roundtable. Thomas, welcome. Hey, Matt. Good to have you here. So you were following this whole streetlight camera story. You watched that meeting Thursday night. Basically, use of these video recording streetlights were on the table. What ended up happening there? The Privacy Advisory Board chose to reject a police plan to start using these streetlight cameras again. Just a little bit of background. During the teens, the at least the late teens, these streetlight cameras were installed and they were being used and police did have access to them. But once people realized in about 2020 that we had these cameras in San Diego, Suddenly, they became very controversial. And in 2020, Mayor Kevin Faulkner decided just to stop using them and stop allowing the police to get images and video from from these cameras because they had become so controversial. And that's kind of where we're standing now. And we're still in that place because, like I said, last night, the Privacy Advisory Board would not recommend that the city council give police access to these cameras again, at least under the police plan to do it. And so we're talking about adding basically more of these video recording streetlight cameras. Uh, What were some of the arguments for and against using them? One thing about you said that we're talking about using using more of them. They are going to be installing new ones, but the old ones that were originally up are still up there. And they're still recording images and still recording movement down on the street. They've they've not been turned off. Well, the argument in favor of it, which was almost exclusively voiced by the police at this meeting last night, was that they uh, deter and detect crime. The police officer who testified, the one cop who testified, gave some examples of shootings that occurred where these streetlights provided important information that helped police to investigate the situation. He actually gave one example of a recent shooting that happened at the Central Library in downtown San Diego where a camera from a coffee shop actually caught an image of a person running away from that 
shooting. And even though that wasn't a city streetlight camera, that was one example he gave of how important cameras in public places are to investigate crimes. Now, the people who were opposed to it said that it was an invasion of their privacy. Now, that's something the police disagree with. They say, no, you don't have an expectation of privacy in a public place. But even though they made that argument, people didn't buy it. Nearly everybody who testified last night was opposed to the police plan to start reusing these cameras. And the feeling you got, Matt, was that people in that room simply didn't trust the police. Even if the police policy had been written in a different way, even if it had a few more protections, these these folks just didn't want the police taking pictures of them and having access to those pictures because they don't trust the police. And we know that this Privacy Advisory Board, their volunteer, their job is to like advise the San Diego City Council, who ultimately will see this proposal to use these streetlights. Uh, there was a lot of debate with board members over whether these cameras would violate someone's Fourth Amendment right or, or kind of track people. Here's San Diego Police Lieutenant Charles Laura from Thursday night's meeting. These cameras look at public spaces and observe public spaces as a patrol officer would driving through any, any given community. Why did the privacy board push back against what the lieutenant was saying there? Well, first of all, Fourth Amendment, your Fourth Amendment right is your right uh, to not be subject to illegal searches and seizures. That's what the Fourth, Fourth Amendment is. And the police officer who you just heard, Lieutenant Lara, said in a public place, if somebody observes you holding contraband or holding a gun, that's not a search. They just see it. Now, as soon as that contraband goes into your pocket, it becomes a different thing. Then you need to get a warrant in order to see it. But the police were arguing that this is a public place. There is no expectation of privacy in a public place. And so there's nothing wrong with these cameras. A lot of the members of the Privacy Advisory Board disagreed with that. They believed that you do have a certain amount of privacy rights even in public places. And there was a lot of talk, as you mentioned, there was a lot of talk about so-called tracking, that they think that what is going on here is the people are actually fastening on to a person and tracking them as they move along the street. And that is not just an observation. That's following somebody, as if you you know, found a person and decided to follow them. That is not protected. So what exactly is the police department's plan to, to use these cameras again or add more of them? I think you mentioned kind of helping solve crimes. I mean, is that sort of what the idea is here? And, and, and do we know how many of these cameras might go up? Well, the current plan, as I believe described in, in the police plan, is to have 1,000 cameras in 500 different places. I couldn't tell you, Matt, exactly where those places are. But the point is, yes, to deter crime and help to investigate crime. That's what the police say they want to do. And in your reporting, you also note that these cameras, they have the ability to look into some private places. Uh, did that come up at the meeting and, and sort of what's being done to ensure that these cameras would not be used in private areas? It seemed like some public commenters were kind of worried about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something that people are worried about. And, you know, maybe they have a point. These these cameras, where they're placed and given the circumference of the view that they have, they're going to be able to look into private places. They're going to be able to look inside people's windows, into courtyards, that kind of thing. And that was a situation where the police are just kind of saying, well, yeah, but we won't do that. We'll block those images. 
trust us. We're not going to look inside your windows. And again, when you're talking to a group of, a pe- group of people who are pretty distrustful of the police, they said, you know, a lot of them said, no, that's not good enough. And, you know, Tom, watching testimony from this meeting, many expressed concerns about how this technology might target people of color. Here was one comment from Sumeya Abdullahi. If this technology is put in my community, it would further enforce surveilling and targeting people of color for no reason. The goal for this technology is to enforce more safety, but I feel it will do the complete opposite by targeting innocent people. My community is already targeted and watched enough, and this will make it worse. Yeah, and Matt, there you can see um, a lot of people are looking at what the police are doing and they're saying, no, no, you're not trying to protect us. You're just trying to watch us and turn us into criminals if you see something kind of suspicious. So what do privacy advocates or these people want to see from the city or the, or the police department? Well, nobody has gone so far as to say we absolutely do not want these cameras. It's always about... The plan, the police plan wasn't good enough. It doesn't it didn't do enough to tell people how this data was going to be used and how it was going to be shared. It didn't do enough to tell uh, us about what kind of vendors they're using who are going to actually operate this machine machinery. Nobody has actually come out and say, no, absolutely not. We don't want the police using cameras. But when you when you're distrustful of the police and if you're a privacy advocate who really don't want what they kept calling widespread surveillance, then all I can say is the city is going to have to come up with a pretty impressive plan if these folks are going to accept those cameras. And so what's next here? It seems like the police department isn't, you know, sort of backing down, proverbially speaking, about trying to use these cameras. Well, what comes next, most likely, Matt, is a hearing before the the city council's public safety committee. This is an advisory board, the San Diego Privacy Advisory Board. They have no powers to stop this plan. They have no powers to stop legislation. And uh, they can make a recommendation, but that's about it. Their recommendation, by the way, I'm not sure if we said, was unanimous. Nobody on that board liked the police plan, but they're not going to stop it. From here, I assume, is going to go on to the Public Safety Committee and then eventually to the San Diego City Council, who will make the ultimate decision. All right, Tom. So it sounds like this was the first step in a multi-step process. Uh, What are you going to be watching for in the weeks ahead? Well, like I said, Matt, this plan of the police is going to go before the, ultimately, before the uh, Public Safety Committee and the City Council. I think it will be interesting to see whether the police do make changes to their plan. A lot of people on that board were frustrated that they didn't know much about the vendor that they were using. Are the police going to fill in some of the blanks on that? Are they going to modify their policy to make people a little more comfortable about how they're going to use the data and who else is going to have access to it? So those are going to be some important uh, things to go ahead and watch. These cameras, Matt, they're not going away. And... (laughs) cameras in public places, as you very well know, are not going away. And they do have some advantages. Uh, Because of cameras in public places, we know what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis. We know we found we're able to find out who uh, the bombers, the Boston Marathon bombers were because of all the cameras that law enforcement was able to monitor. They're out there. They can be used for good and for bad. So, It's just, 
I guess, a political process where we're going to have to find a way to agree on how they should be used by the police. And we'll certainly see if the city council agrees with this privacy board recommendation. Thomas Fudge is KPBS's science and technology reporter. And Thomas, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Matt. We'd like to hear your thoughts on the streetlight camera proposal. Is that something that you think could work? Give us a call, 619-452-0228, and you can leave us a voicemail there. Coming up after the break, peak fire season is here. We'll hear how weather can factor into the size of wildfires. And is June gloom gone for good this year? The weather pattern that's been producing our May gray June gloom is an extension of this past winter. That's coming up just ahead. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. Peak fire season has arrived in San Diego. Just this week, there were several brush fires in our county, at least a couple of which caused people to evacuate their homes. We begin tonight with breaking news as several brush fires have erupted across the county today. Breaking news. Just one day before summer officially begins, firefighters have been scrambling today to put out several brush fires. Fire season started with a vengeance. Four brush fires were reported from north to east county. This peak fire season is starting a little bit later than last year, and Cal Fire officials say that's due partially to the, all the weather we've had, a lot of May gray and June gloom. Here's Cal Fire Captain Brent Pasqua. Fire season is year-round, and peak fire season is here. So if you still have brush to clear around your house, uh, now's a really good time to do it. Let's not wait. Um, the other day just showed us that we're not going to just slowly – transition into peak fire season we had five uh fires that day that you know and a few did threaten some homes joining us to discuss how weather could impact this fire season and what we're expecting weather wise this summer is alex tardy he's a meteorologist with the national weather service here in san diego and alex great to have you here on roundtable Thanks for having me on. Always good to have you here. It's been a little bit. And so we know that several fires broke out this week. And thankfully, all of them were knocked down fairly quickly. In Pine Valley, the Blackwood Fire burned 37 acres, and it took down one structure. Fire crews say high winds contributed to its spread. Here's Captain Pasqua again. A lot of these fires you won't hear about when we don't have the winds and the hot, dry days because um, we get, it's easier to keep them small. But when we do have the winds and it's hot and dry, that's when we start getting these bigger fires that go more than 10 acres. So, Alex, we know that summer is here. Do we know how high winds or even high temperatures can, you know, contribute to a fire spread? Yeah, it's true. And officially, summer is here. Uh, It seemed like it took forever with the May gray, June gloom, cloudy days and the really wet winter we had. Um, Temperature is a big factor in fires. Uh, We see that statewide the hot days, the warmer than normal days, we tend to have more fires. Um, the wildfire activity tends to be a little more aggressive, so it burns a little faster. And then if you throw on any type of wind, even if it's normal wind, like we saw um, this week, that can really aggravate and cause the spread to be rapid. And when I spoke with Cal Fire officials, they mentioned that the brush is drying out out there in the mountains and the hills. And they also said even though people may see some green, there's a lot of dead dry brush that's underneath that. Uh, Does the forecast indicate at all if that drying trend is going to continue? Yeah. So um, this time of the year, it's a really critical time of the year, especially after a wet year. 
So after a wet year, you have a lot of new growth. So grasses, flowers, weeds, shrubs that come up. And um, that can be potential fuel. And so this time of the year, we're also in the period where it doesn't rain much uh, of any significance. So we can go months without any rain. So that vegetation doesn't last long, even though it looks great in April. By the time you get to June and July, it looks moisture starved, dead. Some of it goes dormant. Um, it basically browns up or goldens up our slopes and becomes a, uh, a fire hazard just because there's so much of it and it's brittle and ready to burn. And something else that's on CAL FIRE's radar this summer is an El Nino. They say that there's like a 90% chance that we'll see one by July. Uh, and they also said that could bring lightning and thunderstorms. Um, first, before we get into that, can you tell us what an El Nino is? Yeah, it's a time for a good refresher, um, especially after how wet this past winter was. It, it To some, it probably felt like an El Nino in their memory. But what El Nino really is... Um, is the ocean temperatures along the equator, uh, south of Hawaii. And it's a phenomenon that occurs every two or three years. It goes from a cycle of colder than usual water to warmer than usual water. So it was discovered by fishermen along the equator, like in South America, uh, because the fish sense the difference from warmer water to colder water. So right now, the easy part is that we can see on satellite that El Nino's there. So the water's already warmer than it should be along the equator. It's expanding westward along the equator. So El Nino is happening now as we speak. But that's just an ocean condition. Um, and we have to wait to see how that interacts with the atmosphere or our weather patterns to see if the two um, respond and make any difference with our upcoming weather patterns either this summer or even next winter. And we know that lightning can obviously spark fires. It sounds like that's something that's on CAL FIRE's radar with this El Nino. Uh, I mean, is that typical in El Nino, like a bunch of lightning? And is it accompanied by rain ever? Um, it depends. Some years it is. So in general, um, what's going to bring us lightning in Southern California is what we call the monsoon, which is a seasonal event. It brings moisture up from Mexico. It actually doesn't rely on El Nino um, to to materialize, to generate, to bring showers and thunderstorms. Um, typically what we see from El Nino are a couple things. Uh, the water on our coast will get warmer. Uh, it's been really cool uh, this spring, uh, you know, starting in April, 52 degrees in La Jolla, um, and then the May Gray. But so usually the water will warm on our coast eventually, like later in the summer when El Nino materializes and gets bigger. The other thing, other thing we see is hurricanes. Uh, so along the equator, more hurricanes are typically common uh, in the Pacific with an El Nino. Uh, directly associated with monsoon, not really. Um, El Nino is not what I'm worried about. Uh, what I'm worried about is uh, all the fuel vegetation and really any type of lightning. Hmm. And then what does that El Nino mean for San Diego? Like, do we expect it to come here? And is that going to warm up our water around the beaches? Is, is it going to bring some rain? Or Yeah, eventually um, our water should start warming up and as the whole central and southern Pacific basin starts to warm and expand. Uh, what El Nino really can do is change our jet stream. Um, it can cause our storm track, which brings us rain in the winter and snow, cause it to shift further south. Um, but a lot of science is up in the air on 
where can it exactly change our jet stream? So we know it changes our jet stream, but we just don't have a good handle of where. Um, and that where is huge because if you're not in that storm track, other parts of the state are super wet and we're dry or vice versa. Like last year, we were very wet and the Pacific Northwest was much drier than usual. So exactly where that storm track gets shifted to, um, if we're in the crosshairs of that or not, we don't have a good handle on that, even though we know El Nino, the warming of the ocean, will shift the jet stream in a different place. And we've seen some pretty destructive weather in other parts of the country, like I'm thinking like Texas right now. Like, are they in the crosshairs of an El Nino, do you know, or is that just like kind of separate? That's a, a really good question and, and observation because um, the weather pattern that's been producing our May gray June gloom is an extension of this past winter. So in other words, the, the storm track that was over us all winter with 13 atmospheric rivers that's continued, even though it's been much, much weaker. So we're not getting big rain or anything, but we're getting clouds and drizzle. But that energy that's coming across Southern California, bringing all those clouds we've seen recently, it has to go somewhere, right? So it's actually going across us into Texas, into the deep south. So the conditions they've been experiencing with tornadoes and severe wind and thunderstorms and hail, very unusual to see that in mid-June so far south. Usually this time of the year, it's shifted more north, Chicago, Northern Plains, New England. So yeah, the, the weather we've been seeing this past winter and even this spring with the May Gray, is in, that energy is influencing the severe weather. We don't know if it's tied directly to the developing El Nino though. It appears to be more of an extension or continuation of this past winter, which was just remarkably active. It, the last winter does not wanna let up. And let's, let's kind of get into that a little bit, because I think all San Diegans are familiar with May Gray and June Gloom, but man, this year just feels different. Like, I mean, just a lot of uh, cloud cover. Even when people are driving, they're probably familiar with getting some some water on their windshield and having to use their windshield wipers. Um, I think our region was even one of the cloudiest for all of May in the continental U.S. So uh, what do you make of the stronger marine layer? I mean, do we know why it's it's been here so much? Yeah, everyone's perception, um, if, it, if it's been unusual in their mind, is correct, absolutely correct. We had 20 days in May in San Diego that were cloudy. They were rated as cloudy, so 80% cloudiness all day or higher. Um, if you have solar energy, you'll see that on your generation. It's been, it's been way down. Um, then we went into June, and we've had 12 days in June of cloudy. 80% or higher uh, of the day was clouds, so the sun wasn't out. So it's it's definitely been something that's more than a perception, more than a feeling. Um, it's showing up statistically, and it'll show up on your energy bills too or your solar lack of generation. Um, that same storm track has been aggravating what we call our normal May gray, normal marine layer. So every year we have clouds in May and June because that's when the ocean's at its coldest temperature and the deserts are heating up rapidly because the jet stream normally is shifting north back to Canada. This year, the jet stream hasn't been in Canada. They've been dry, hot, many wildfires. The jet stream has decided to stay down south. And because of that, it's allowing the marine layer to be deeper, more expansive, last longer, and just more dominant. So we've got to lose this storm track and, and shift it back closer to where it should be 
Yeah, so the good thing about the weather pattern, the jet stream that's been persistently hanging over Southern California, is that the extensive cloud cover, the drizzle days, the lack of sun has delayed our fire season by about a month and a half. So the drying, the curing of all that grass and brush is uh, well behind. So a lot of our areas, even though they're drying, um, this normally happens faster this time of the year. And I, I think you said in there that we're about a month behind typically what we are. What does that mean going forward? Like, should we be expecting more of this? Or uh, can you sort of promise us that the, the June gloom is, is, is totally gone, not going to go into July? Yeah, indications right now. Um, and and we felt that this week already, some really warm, sunny days, is that um, it's not over with yet, the May, gray, June gloom. We're still going to see some more of it as we go through June because the weather systems are still dropping over California. And those weather systems end up going in the middle of the country and cause a lot of thunderstorms where the moisture is much greater. But the long-range forecast is for us to recover back to what we call normal. And, and normal means a lot of sunshine. Uh, and normal means a lot of rapid drying and, and no rain, basically, uh, unless, we're, unless we get a monsoonal thunderstorm type of thing. So that will um, accelerate the drying and um, we will gradually build up and catch up. So I always look at it as a delay. So whenever we have rain in the spring or fall or whenever we have cool conditions, it's like a delay to the inevitable. And the inevitable is that our vegetation is going to be ripe, very dry, and ready to go. Now our big forests, like the big trees and all that, they had so much rain over the year that they're still sucking up soil moisture. And it's going to take a lot longer to late summer for the big, big wildfires. But we'll have the threat now because of the warming temperatures and the increasing sunshine, especially in July, to have a lot more of the smaller vegetation fires. You know, in, in regards to things like climate change, we typically hear that summers, they're going to get hotter. I mean, is there any indication that this summer is going to be an unusually hotter one for San Diego? Um, not for San Diego. Um, indications are that it'll be about average, but for interior areas um, like our deserts and mountains and Nevada, the Great Basin, there is indication that, that it'll be warmer than average, even the Pacific Northwest. One interesting fact, um, the past three summers, so if you look at July through September, the past three summers in California as a whole are the warmest on record. So even 2022 last year, extremely warm uh, over most of California averaged together. The one thing that'll keep San Diego in check, we think, this summer is the cooler than average ocean temperatures that we saw and continue to see in our region. But for areas that tend to get big fires out west, uh, those areas will likely be above average or warmer than they should be. But hopefully not like what we've seen the past three years, which again are the three warmest years on record from 2020 to 2022 in the state of California in the summer months. I've been speaking with Alex Tardy. He's a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me on. And now it's time for the Roundtable Roundup, where we take a look at some other top stories that are happening here in San Diego. And with us to help get us there is KPBS Roundtable producer Andrew Bracken. Andrew, what's going on? Hey, Matt. Great to have you here. So what's on your list this week? Well, um, Kristen Takeda from the San Diego Union-Tribune, 
She had a piece about the San Diego Unified School District Board uh, finally approving the new contract with teachers and other school employees. I think it's a big deal. It's been something that's been talked about for a while. And I think from our reporting, our education reporter, M.G. Perez, he called this a historic new contract. I mean, are we talking about like in terms of the raises that they might be getting? Yeah, I mean, they, they received a 10% retroactive raise, and then they have another raise coming up this year. And it sounds like part of that agreement includes having a full-time counselor at every school now, right? No, that actually, it, it didn't. That was one thing that, that I think the teachers were really pushing mm-hmm. for, having a full-time counselor at every elementary school. They did expand that, um, but some schools will still only have a counselor three days a week. But I think it, it still... You know, you still hear about it when talking to teachers in the district about, you know, kind of some of the mental health challenges and some of, you know, still these challenges we're kind of recovering from after the pandemic closures we saw in 2021. All right. Well, what else is on your list? In our newsroom, John Carroll uh, had a story yesterday on layoffs at Qualcomm, the tech giant here locally laid off about 415 workers. And, you know, just just the, like, what does that mean? I know we've heard a lot about the economy and potential recession. At the same time, we've also heard a lot about how actually strong San Diego's economy is doing and a pretty low unemployment rate. So we'll have to see whether, you know, whether that leads to anything or not. Yeah, and I know uh, Qualcomm, they make those uh, smartphone chips. Like pretty much any, everybody with a cell phone has like a some sort of Qualcomm or maybe Snapdragon, they call it chip now. Um, but yeah, it, it was interesting in John's story about how you know, revenue is down, you know, in terms of like, I think it was over a billion dollars just in one quarter. Um, they talked about a smartphone kind of boom. And then now we're in that downslope. Um, what was it, like 400 employees laid off? In San Diego, yeah. I think yeah. about 80 more in the Bay Area. And I think that goes into effect uh, next month, mid-next month. And you have to think that those are probably pretty good paying jobs. All right. Well, what else have you been seeing out there? Well, this is from the New York Times, and it's not a San Diego-specific story, but it's something I just was reading late into the night last night, how the U.S. population is older than it's ever been. The average age in the census in 1980 was was 30, and now it's it's over 38. And just what that means is it may not seem like that big a deal, but it has pretty huge implications potentially to just the future of our nation, future of the economy, social programs, all that stuff. So I think it's It'll be interesting to see yeah, just what it means. I also know from my own beat here in San Diego on, on the health beat that healthcare officials, whether it be the county or even some of these hospitals, um, they've been sort of preparing for this too and investing more in how they're going to be able to care for some of that older population. So it's definitely something that's on everybody's radar, sort of. And it's not just an American problem. We've seen this, you know, I think I've heard a lot in certain countries in Asia. Japan has this problem. Europe. I mean, a lot of countries are going through it. But, yeah, it has huge implications to what the society is going to look like in, you know, the next few decades with this aging population. If there's not enough kids being born, you know, where the worker is going to come from. I think a lot of it's what it comes down to. Yeah, I know we have been seeing declining birth rates even here in San Diego County, too. I remember trying to do a story about that, but not really being able to tap into the why in terms of, you know, you can kind of summarize things or think things like, oh, it's because it's expensive to live here kind of thing, or people are waiting to have kids until they're older. Um, But it doesn't seem like that there's a true reason of why birth rates are are down. All right. And uh, it sounds like you got one more thing you've been seeing. On the sports front, the Women's World Cup starts in a little under a month. And the U.S. women's national team announced their final rosters, of which there are a couple local San Diego Wave players 
forward Alex Morgan, that was probably not a huge surprise. She's been, you know, she's been involved in teams in the past in the World Cup. She's, you know, a soccer superstar. Yeah, one of the best, right? Yeah, she's like one of the top forwards in the world. But uh, defender Naomi Gurma was sort of a surprise ad. The women's national team captain, Becky Sauerbrunn, she actually got injured, so she wasn't able to, to make it to the World Cup. So, yeah, this this young player, you know, so there's some new players kind of coming on this World Cup roster, one of which is Naomi Gurma, who plays for the Wave. And here's a little of her reaction to the news of being added to the World Cup roster. I was so happy. I tried to group FaceTime my family right after. No one answered. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was just so incredible um, to get that confirmation from him and to be representing the U.S. in a World Cup. This has been something that I've dreamed of, so for it to be happening is just the best feeling. That is really so cool, and it's also cool that San Diego is going to have some representation on the world stage there, but come on, family, get it together. <laughs> Nobody answered her FaceTime, she said. <laughs> I, I mean, I just like that clip because it just captures that. And another point in the interview, I think she talks about, you know, just all the people that helped her to get there. But just that joy and make what it means, you know, the World Cup is... It's the World Series of soccer. It's the Super Bowl of soccer. You know what I mean? Right, it's way it's, bigger than the World Series, even, it's a, right? I mean, it is it's like... A, it's a big deal. So it's just nice to see, you know, again, another local player make that. And even on other teams other than the United States, the Wave will probably have a couple other participants in the World Cup, thinking the Canadian goalkeeper, Kaylin Sheridan, she'll probably be on the Canadian team uh, next month as well. Yeah, again, the Women's World Cup, it starts uh, July 20th, and this year it's in Australia and New Zealand. So we'll see how the U.S. women's team does. They they have a lot of championships to show, so we'll, you know, hopefully they can bring one more back. And hopefully some San Diego stars get some uh, goals in that, so we can talk about it later. Absolutely. But Andrew Bracken, thanks for being here. That's the Roundup. Thanks, Matt. Before we go here on Roundtable, last week we discussed the city of San Diego's homeless camping ban. It passed its first vote at city council. It would prohibit encampments at all times in sensitive areas and in other public places, but that's only when shelter beds are available. We asked for your thoughts, and here's what one listener had to say. This is uh, Dennis Dodgua here in Carlsbad, uh, California, and uh, my concern, even though we don't have a great homeless situation here at Carlsbad, my idea is that we turn to Camp Pendleton, huge piece of property, sanction off a piece of that property, and create a city of hope where we have resources for people who want to get rehabilitated. That's going to do it for this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. We really appreciate you being here, and we'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show. You can call us at 619-452-0228. If you do, leave us your name and where you're calling from, and as you just heard, we might play it on a future show. You can also email us roundtable at kpbs.org. Keep in mind, there is a Roundtable podcast. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Our show airs on KPBS at noon on Fridays and again on Sunday at 6 a.m. And Adrian Villalobos is our technical director. I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us and have a great weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.